Well, if you've got a Bible this morning, uh, you can open it to Isaiah chapter 6. If you do not have a Bible, it will be on the screen for you this morning. We are in the Old Testament. And so, um, Isaiah chapter 6. And we are starting a new series today um, called Own the Vision. And we're going to be talking about, uh, in the coming weeks, about our mission and vision as a church. Uh, we did something like this about five years ago, almost, yeah, a little over five years ago now, I think. And uh, so it's good to come back from that probably more often than we do. And we'll hit on it usually in a sermon here or there throughout the year. But we're going to park into a series, much like we did about five years ago, um, starting this week. And to own the vision, when I say that, it means to, to make it yours, right? To embrace it. And uh, it, it means to... To, to believe, to, to believe um, not just simply that the vision uh, for your local church is something that's kind of out there uh, for people to do or for people that are paid to do, to do or to what, whatever, and it's just something to, to, or just something to pray for, but it's something to embrace in our lives as individuals as we move forward that we are a part of what God is doing. And I believe the way we own the vision is primarily by owning or embracing the mission God has called us to. If we embrace God's mission for the local church, we will fulfill that specifically here at North Park, exactly how he wants it to look in terms of our vision. Uh, because the vision for any local church should never be divorced from the mission that God has for every local church, which is to make disciples. And I firmly believe God can do great things in and through our local church here at North Park. And that our best days can be ahead of us and not behind us if we fully embrace what God has called us to as a church. Now, if we don't do that, then I believe that our best days can be behind us. I don't think we're above that. So it's our choice, right, whether we want to embrace what God's called us to. And It's the same for you as an individual, same for us in the church as individuals. God wants to make us um, more like Christ. He wants to use us in his mission of reconciling the world to himself and if we're going to experience God's best for our lives, which means living on mission with Him, then we've got to embrace God's mission and own His vision for our life of becoming more like Christ. And it's God's plan that every believer live that out in the context of a local church that's living that out as a community. And that's kind of what we're looking at over the next several weeks. Now, here's the thing. We can't really own the vision, so to speak, or embrace the purpose and mission of the church without first knowing the God of the mission. Before we can see what God can do through us, we must see God clearly, know who He is, that He's real, what He's like. We, we've got to constantly have our eyes fixed on the Lord. And believers and churches alike wander. We're prone to wander from God's purpose when we lose sight of who God is and our own experience with Him. And if we're going to embrace God's purpose for us, if we're going to own the vision of being the person in the church he's called us to be, we need to have a clear vision of who he is. We need our perspective to continually be being shaped by a biblical understanding and a biblical experience with God. Um, it's kind of like um, um, when you go to a movie, like a 3D movie, and if you've ever been to a 3D movie, if you tried to watch that movie without the little 3D glasses they give you, or you go in to do the little 3D ride at Disney World without the 3D glasses, right? It's a total, total difference with and without the glasses. Just the other day, I was in there with, uh, uh, with, with my son. We were doing the little Star Wars ride at Disney World. And, you know, you kind of take the glasses, you kind of peek, and it's like, ugh. You know, everything's blurry. Everything's unclear. Put the glasses on, 3D. Everything's great. It's like those, um, th those viral videos that have been going around the last two or three years of these people that are colorblind, 
And then now they've got glasses that many people that are colorblind it will correct that. And so their family surprises them with these gifts of these colorblind correcting glasses. Have you ever seen any of these videos that are going around? It's been on the news and viral. And they walk outside and they have this birthday present and they open it up. And they, for the very first time, they see color, right? And they're outside and instead of seeing just mud and gray or whatever, you know, they see a sunset or a sunrise and they see flowers and they see tree. everything looks different. Their perspective has been changed. They're in awe. And I'm convinced that if we're going to experience life in church the way God intends, we have to continually be looking at Him so that He shapes our perspective. Because if we get our eyes off Him, our perspective gets warped. And we can't have a vision for church and the Christian life without a clear vision of God, without specifically a clear vision of Christ. And in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, we read of the prophet Isaiah's vision and experience that he had that radically impacted his life. And it left him with nothing but a yes on the table before the Lord. And that's really what we're talking about today. Because when we really see God for who he is and experience him for who he is, there's really nothing left to say to him but yes. Yes to what? Just yes. And a lot of us like to try and haggle with God. But Isaiah's experience leaves him simply saying, yes, here I am. Right? That's how the, where he leads to. Here I am. Send me. So let's look at Isaiah's experience and how it might impact ours. Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Isaiah writes, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? That I said, Here I am. Send me. It's a classic text. If you've been in church your whole life, as many of you have, you've heard this text probably preached a lot of times. It's... It's one of the great texts of the Bible. And just a little bit about Isaiah. Isaiah is, if you're not familiar with this text, Isaiah is a prophet of God in the Old Testament. Jesus quotes Isaiah. The New Testament quotes Isaiah. A lot of the prophecies of the Messiah from the Old Testament are in the book of Isaiah. But he served the Lord at a very difficult time. When Isaiah was serving the Lord, God's people were very, very rebellious. And in this season, judgment is soon to come. And God is sending Isaiah out as a prophet. And the vision took place, it says, in the year that King Uzziah died. And what that means is uh, that, that last year, some point of his life, is when I, he experiences this call and this vision. Now, Uzziah was a very strong leader. During his time, uh, God's people were very prosperous as a nation. He served for 52 years. Now imagine that. Imagine having a president for 52 years. He king for 52 years. He brought peace, military strength. On the surface, things looked very good among God's people. But 
Uzziah kind of had his own dark secrets. He, he became so full of pride during his reign that he tried to do some things that he shouldn't do. For instance, he tried to do what only a priest should do. God had ordained that there were certain things that only a priest should do in terms of worshiping the Lord. And he decided, you know, as king, I'll take this into my hands. And what's really happening is he didn't take the holiness of God very seriously. And he did something he shouldn't do. And when he did, God struck him with leprosy as punishment for what he did. And while his reign symbolized security, peace, and strength, as one commentator pointed out, his leprosy and now his death foreshadow a coming judgment that began with the king. As much like their king, God's people have not been taking seriously the holiness of God. And in this text, we see Isaiah has a vision of the Lord, right, in the year of King Uzziah's death. In other words, you know, the king might be dead, but the Lord is on the throne. And people debate whether this is Isaiah's initial call to being a prophet or whether it's sort of a renewed call or maybe a call to a particular unique ministry. And it's hard to know for sure, but ultimately what really matters is that Isaiah had this vision and it, it radically changed everything for Isaiah. He, he was different because of this, this vision here in Isaiah chapter 6. Nothing was the same. And I think there's two things that we need to learn and apply from Isaiah's vision to, if we're going to be people that put our yes on the table, be people that, that sort of step up and give the God our, the here I am before we even necessarily always know what God wants us to do. Number one, we need a vision of God that shapes our life. That's what happens here for Isaiah, right? He has a vision of God, very literally, that shapes his life. But we, we need a vision in our own way that shapes our life, a vision of God. Notice some things here about Isaiah's vision. First of all, we see he sees the Lord. He says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high lifted up. Well, he sees the Lord in, in, the, in his sovereignty is what that means. He's seated on the throne. He's the one in control, high and lifted up. There's no authority above him. He is the one that's truly in control, the highest authority. He sees the Lord in all his majesty. He says, the train of his robe filled the temple. This is a picture of splendor and majesty, the grandeur, the beauty of God. Now, in our culture, when we think of trains on robes, we tend to think of the bridal train, right? Um, in the bridal train, it shows the splendor of the bride as she walks in. It, all eyes go to her. That's kind of the whole point. It highlights that she's the one to watch. Highlights her splendor and her beauty. And You know, the average bridal train is one to three feet long. A formal one is six to seven and a half feet. Now, a princess train is different. Princess Kate's bridal train across the pond was 10 feet. The late Princess Diana, 25 feet. Now, if you're at a wedding and you see a bride come in and it's three feet, five feet, seven feet, it's 10 feet, now you're like, oh, she thinks she's a princess, you know? 12 feet, 15 feet, 20 feet, 25 feet, 30 feet. I mean, oh, what in the world? You're right. I said, well, I see the Lord on the throne. And his train fills the temple, which was no small space. So it's just like layer upon layer upon layer upon layer, just this endless train. And it's not that the Lord's wearing a bridal gown. That's not the point. The point is this. His majesty, his splendor is matchless. All eyes are on him, and there, there's no one that measures up to his grandeur. It's otherworldly. Un and he's on a throne. And it's more like a judge's robe, right? Matchless authority, unending power. So he sees the Lord in his sovereignty. He sees the Lord in his majesty. He sees the Lord in his holiness. In verse 2, he describes these creatures called seraphim. They're not animals. 
because they can talk. They're quite unique. We don't really know what they are other than we'll just call them creatures. <laughs> but it says they have six wings. Now, what do you do with all those wings? Well, with four of them, they used to hide themselves from God. One commentator said the reason their feet are covered is that they are submitted and committed to only going the direction God would have them go. I like that. It's a picture of humility before God, covering their face, covering their feet. And in verse 3, he says they have this song, if you will, that they're singing over and over again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. They are using what scholars call a super superlative in referring to God's holiness. Right? I mean, when you say a superlative, it would be like the Bible repeats things for emphasis, like it's kind of like an exclamation mark. So a superlative would be like he's holy, holy. A super superlative is holy, holy, holy. And scholars say that it's the only time in the Hebrew that you'll see a super superlative like this three times, a three-time repetition. You won't read in the Old Testament that God is love, 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 or that he's grace, grace, grace. And my, the point is, it, it, the emphasis here is he's holy, holy, holy. There, there's something unique here. We need to get our, our minds around the best we can because it's his otherness. That's what the word means. He's not like us. He's distinct. He's separate, right? His love is holy love. His grace is holy grace. It kind of it emanates from everything about him is holy. It's his godness, his very otherness from us. We're sinners. He's sinless. He's completely other. He's God. It's his godness. He is holy because he is God. And notice the creatures are saying he is holy. He's not trying to be holy. He's not working it up. He's not becoming holy. He's not becoming more holy. He, he just is holy. It's just who he is. It just kind of emanates from who he is. There's nothing else God can be. It's, he's holy. We try. We strive. We're to be holy because he is holy. But we can't be holy like him. He had to make us holy. We'll get to that here in a minute. But the creatures, they just cry out because there's nothing else to say other than holy, 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 not like us, not like us, not like us, other than us, other than us, distinct, separate. They're just calling out to his godness. And he sees the Lord in, all, in his, his glory. And that really encapsulates the whole passage. But notice he says the whole earth is full of his glory. Some say this refers to how God shows his glory through all of creation. and Others show, say a better translation points of how the earth will be filled with his glory and the new heaven and the new earth because literally in the language it can be will be. May, or like a prayer, may the earth be filled with his glory. The gospel of John tells us Jesus was full of his glory. There's a sense in which Jesus came, the, the very embodiment, the, the glory of God and, and he, God himself in human flesh full of the glory of God. At the same time, we know there's coming a day where, where sin will be done away with and, and God's glory will permeate the earth in a unique way in the new heaven and the new earth. But he wants us to know throughout this passage that God is glorious, that there's literally no one else like him. And, and it, notice he sees the Lord in his power. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of God. God speaks and the very foundation of the thresholds of the temple is, is just shaking. So what's happening here? Isaiah has this vision of God and sees him for who he is the best he could. Sovereign, majestic, holy, glorious, powerful. That's God. Isaiah says, that, that's the God that I'm seeing here. This is not some grandpa in the sky, right? Some buddy up there. The big guy in the sky. The man upstairs. Garbage like that, people say when they talk about God. Said, no, this is no man upstairs. This is someone that Isaiah was afraid to, I mean, open his mouth other than to say, whoa, is me. See, 
while we have not had this type of experience, we live on the other side of the Advent, though. You know, in John 12, 41, John equates this with Isaiah seeing Jesus. He said, it was when Isaiah saw the Lord, he saw Jesus, pre-incarnate Christ in His glory. And you and I haven't seen Jesus like that, but we have been given His Word and if we are believers, we have the Spirit of God who reveals to our hearts that He is God, that He is all these things. We've, we don't have Isaiah's experience in that way, but we do have things in this Word that Isaiah didn't have. We've got the testimonies, the eyewitness accounts of the resurrection and of the cross and more Scripture than he had. And the Word of God paints us a vivid picture of our glorious God and the Spirit of God confirms these things to our hearts as believers and question for us this morning before we can go any further is have you experienced God and His truth in such a way that you've been overcome by His sovereignty and His majesty and His holiness and His glory and His power? How do you view God? Do you have a view of God that can shape your life? Have you had the type of experience with Him and His truth that it shapes you? That's what happens to Isaiah. See, when we see who God is, it changes how we see Him and how we relate to Him. When we understand that He is holy and He is sovereign and He is powerful and He's glorious. His, his glory, another word for that would be like His weight. That's like what glory means. It's the, it's in, in the Hebrew, it's the picture of weight. It's the essence of who He is. The point being, God has more weight than anything. He, he matters more than anything. So when your heart truly encounters Him, it's shattering because something that matters more than you, something that matters more than anything else in your life, something with more weight, more essence than you've ever experienced comes crashing into your life. And His vision began to shape everything, starting with how He saw Himself. Notice how He saw Himself. He says, woe is me, I'm lost. See, when Isaiah encounters God in this way through his, this vision, he's broken, he's humbled, he's undone. All he can say is, woe is me. I'm lost. It's literally calling a curse upon himself. See, we see that. We don't think about it because we don't use that term really, woe is me. But in the Hebrew, he is calling a curse upon himself. That's why he says, I am lost. Pastor Tim Keller says of this text that for, for many, God is a concept and not a reality. And as a concept, you are bigger than God. He has to, he has to fit into you. But when you understand that He is a reality, when you understand who He is, you see that He is in fact bigger and weightier than you, more glorious than you. And when it's kind of like when you drop an, an object in the water, right? You had a little pool of water up here and you drop a penny in, it makes a little ripple effect, right? You, you drop a, a marble in, it makes a ripple effect. You drop a baseball in, the, the effect gets a little bit bigger. But if you find something that sort of outweighs the water, some massive element to drop into the water, all the water's gone. And what has happened here to Isaiah is that something bigger than Isaiah is in the room and has been dropped into his life. It's life-changing. Keller illustrates this well because he mentions how when people come to New York City, they come expecting to excel at whatever they do, but then they, they find out when they're in New York City that, that there's a lot of people in their field that are good at what they do, right? Everybody kind of runs there to make their name or whatever. It's kind of like when you're... Um, when you're if you think you're a good basketball player and then you get challenged to a one-on-one -on -one game with LeBron James, you're like, you know, maybe I'm not good. You know? You say you're a good golfer and then, like, you, you go play 18 with Tiger Woods. You're like, mm, maybe I'm not good. You think, you're, you think you're smart and then you sit down with, like, a literal rocket scientist. You're like, maybe I'm not smart. You know? 
It's humbling, right? When you're in the presence of someone that you know is better than you at something or greater than you at something. Well, imagine coming face to face with God as not simply concept, but as reality. It's earth shattering. It's easy to feel awesome when you're a big fish in a small pool. But Isaiah here gets thrown into a never ending ocean of awesomeness, and he's now seeing himself in comparison to God. And that changes everything. Because he sees how small he is in the grand scheme of things, how sinful he is in the grand scheme of things, how insignificant in comparison to God. The thing that really breaks Isaiah is seeing his sin in light of God's holiness. Compared to other Jewish people, he might have been good and moral and upstanding, the godly of the godliest, godliest of the godly. But in this moment, he is not compared to them. He is standing in light, seeing himself in light of who God is with creatures hovering around him, covering themselves, crying, holy, holy, holy. And when he says, woe is me, calling that curse, it's like he's saying, I'm dead, I'm lost, I'm destroyed, I'm wrecked. My life is over, is what he's saying. It's like he's literally come unmoored. The foundations of the threshold of his life are shaking, not just of the temple. And biblically speaking, this is a normal response to God. We say, this, biblically speaking, it's normal. In Job, you know the story of Job. He suffers much. And by the end of the book of Job, what we understand in Job's story is that ultimately what happens to Job is he encounters God in a unique way through his suffering that he hadn't encountered him without his suffering. And in Job 42, 5 and 6, Job says, I heard of you, talking to the Lord, I heard of you by the hearing of the ear. And now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. How does Job, this man with the book of Job talks about how righteous and godly he is. He says, when I finally get a better glimpse of who the Lord is, I hate myself. I despise myself. I, I repent in dust and ashes. I, feel, woe is me. In the New Testament, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus does one of his miracles upon catching fish, right? He tells them, you know, you don't put it over here, put it over here, and they catch all these fish. And when Simon Peter, been fishing his whole life, Sees it in Luke 5, 8. It says, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. See, when people really fully grasp who God is and who they are in light of who God is, the natural instinct is to not consider God buddy or pal, but to be terrified. <laughs> See, when we really encounter God, it's humbling. And it begins to shape everything else about our life. When we become Christians, this is where we start. We, we realize we're sinners. It doesn't matter if we're better than our friends or our family or other people in our neighborhood. God's holy and we're not. That's why it matters. And that's where conversion starts. Is when we realize who we are in comparison to who God is and who he demands that we be. And by the way, that's also where personal revival starts as a Christian. Constantly looking to God through His Word, realizing His greatness and our smallness, His holiness and our sinfulness apart from Him. Let me ask you this morning, how big is your God? If you're able to tell Him no, if you're able to ignore Him, if you're able to put Him on the back burner instead of at the very center of your life, you are not viewing God correctly. Your vision is clouded and it's going to lead you off purpose. 
I heard someone say recently, it's like, it's like a bicycle wheel. And it's like you've got the center of the bicycle wheel, all the spokes coming out of it. And it's not so much about whether God's first in your life. It's about God being at the center of your life. And everything is connected to Him. Every relationship is connected to Him. Every job or role you play in life is connected to Him. Everything comes back to Him. So whether it's your finances or whether it's work or whether it's parenting or being a husband or wife or being a friend or being a church member, it all just, these spokes coming out. But He's at the center. That's what it means. When we get an understanding of who God really is, we can't help but for Him to be at the center. Because He destroys the foundations of our lives and rebuilds them on Him. Our lives may have been built on our morals or our values or our talents or our traditions, but when for the believer it's to be built on God and His Word, Him at the center. Now notice, His view of God itself is not all that is being impacted. He says, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He also begins to see his community different. See, our view of God has to impact us first. But once it does, it should impact how we view others. We must learn to view our world and our community and our city through the lens of God and his glory and his holiness. We're not the only ones broken. The world's broken. We're not the only ones that need the Lord. People need the Lord. Our community needs the Lord. Our city needs the Lord. Our county needs the Lord. Our neighborhood needs the Lord. Do you realize this morning how bad people in this city need the Lord? That the vast majority of them this morning aren't at church anywhere. And many of the ones that are, are lost and need the Lord. Don't have a real relationship with Him. Do you realize that we live among unclean people like He did? And that we're in the same boat apart from grace. Notice Isaiah didn't see himself as better than these people. He doesn't look and kind of go, wow, God, you're so holy and the place I live is so wicked. No, he looks at, the first thing he says is he calls a curse on himself, right? He's, he's not saying, I'm this way and you're that way. He looks at it and says, oh man, the boat is sinking and we're all in the boat. And I'm in the boat, my neighbor's in the boat. For him, every Jew is in the same boat. All of God's people in the Old Testament were in the same boat. And for us, everybody's in the same boat. We're all in need of grace. He didn't see himself as better than other people. He wasn't looking down at them. He was looking over at them on the other side of the boat. Let me ask you how you view your neighbors this morning. How you view the people in your neighborhood? This neighborhood where our church is located, Baldwin Park, our city, Orlando, Central Florida. How do you view people that don't go to church? How do you view people that don't give a rip about church? or you, or your values, or your politics, or any of that stuff? Do you think you're better than them? Or do you think you both need Jesus? Because if you've got a clear vision of who God is, you will see that you both, you both need Jesus. And that apart from grace, you both will become completely unmoored and broken. But see, if the story just ended with everyone's broken, it would be a horrible story. If all he saw, if the vision just ended with, whoa, it's me, and everybody's messed up, and it just, that, the end, you know, read on, that would be depressing. But he experiences something else about God. He learns something else about God and his character. He experiences God's grace, which once again shapes his view of God, his view of himself, and his view of others. It says in verses 6 and 7, one of those seraphim flew to him. One of those that are crying holy flew to him with his hand a burning coal, right? That came from the altar. And he touched his mouth and said, This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. What's going on here? Isaiah's greatest need. 
Humanity's greatest need, our greatest need, your neighbor's greatest need, your greatest need, my greatest need is forgiveness of our sin. It's to be able to stand before God and not just be, just melt away. To not simply be judged and experience wrath. To be able to actually to be forgiven and to experience grace. See, Isaiah did not just experience God's holiness or his glory and his majesty, but also his grace. And if our only experience with God is just woe is me, we don't really know God. I mean, if that's where church leaves you, as you get up and you walk out week after week and it's just woe is me, you don't know who God is yet. You've got, you've got a distorted view of God. You haven't fully experienced him. If that's all you have is woe of me, we need to not only see God as glorious, we've got to experience his grace because if life ends and we're just woe is me, then woe is us. The symbolism and the vision is clear. I loved how one commentator pointed out how the fire in the Old Testament always symbolized God's wrath, his unapproachableness, his judgment, and this burning burning coal. So it comes from a fire taken from the altar. The altar we know is the place of what? Sacrifice. Where blood was shed from these animals in the Old Testament to make atonement for sin. And it's at the altar where, where wrath is satisfied. And so the symbolism here is clear. We know there's been all this in the Old Testament. Tell, the, the Bible tells us when you get to the New Testament that all of these sacrificial symbols of the Old Testament are pointing ahead to a sacrifice that would come. The ultimate sacrifice that would ultimately satisfy God's wrath. Jesus. That's at the cross that atonement was made for sin. The word atonement carries the idea of a payment being made, a ransom being paid. Jesus bought us out from under the wrath of God. He bought us out of, the sla of slavery to sin. He paid our sin debt by enduring God's wrath, His judgment for us on the cross. That's how much God loves us. That's how much Jesus loves us. As that when it was woe is us, the price was paid that our lips might be touched and we might be made clean, that our lives might be touched by a burning coal. It's like, imagine it's like in the, in the image, it's like Jesus is the coal from the altar. He is the one that has taken the wrath of God. He is the one who has come from, he has made the sacrifice. He is the one who comes. It's him. When he touches our lives, everything's different. We're made clean because God says we're clean. And now Isaiah is not merely a man of woe. He's no longer saying, I'm lost. Now he can say, my guilt is taken away. My sin is atoned for. He wrote it for us in Isaiah 6. He's quoting what the seraphim said, but he writes it down for us. My, my guilt's been taken away. My sin's been atoned for. I'm forgiven. See, God not only shakes our foundation, He rebuilds it by grace and Yes, he's sovereign. Yes, he's majestic and holy and powerful, but he's also gracious, which shows him all the more glorious. Isaiah's view of himself had to be new from this point forward. His now it's not just woe is me, he's forgiven. His view of his community also had to change because now there's hope. There's hope for him, there's hope for them. If God can take away Isaiah's guilt, then he can take away his neighbor's guilt. If they stand in woe, they can also experience God's grace. See, as those who have experienced God's grace, we see God as glorious and we see Him as full of grace and we know we stand lost without Him and we know we're saved by grace alone and we know our neighbors are sinners like us but, we can have, but they can have the hope of salvation just like we can. See, it changes everything when you not only understand who God is in His holiness and His greatness and His gloriousness but also in His grace. But beware of an unbalanced view of God this morning. 
You only see Him as the judge on the throne. And you've forgotten to see Him as the Father who forgives. Or do you only see Him as a forgiving Father and have you forgotten He is the King, He is the judge, He is the Holy One. See, we need a healthy view of God this morning, a balanced view of God. If we're going to battle sin, if we're going to have fuel in our life for mission, we've got to have a balanced view of God. You need to know that God hates sin, hates it. At the same time, God forgives sin, loves you, and is gracious. You've got to see both completely true. It's not like He kind of hates sin or He kind of, no, He completely hates and abhors sin. And at the same time, He loves you and is gracious and wants to forgive. He's completely other than you. And at the same time, Jesus, God in the flesh, walked in your shoes. Both completely true. We need a correct vision of God that embraces all of who God is. And that will begin to shape our life. And how we understand who God is, how we understand who we are, and how we understand who, who we're trying to reach and who we're supposed to love around us. Second thing we learned from Isaiah is we need to respond to God with a surrendered life. We, don't, we just don't need a, a vision that shapes our life. We need a response to God that can only be summarized in surrender. He says in verse 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? I said, Here I am. Send me. Right? The yes is on the table. God asks a question. He has a mission. He has something he wants done. Who's he going to send to do it? And just a few seconds ago, you think Isaiah would have been one volunteering? He was terrified. He was undone. He was lost, calling curses upon himself. But grace has changed everything. Now his hand goes up. See, when we fully understand who God is in both His holiness, His majesty, His sovereignty, and His grace, we can't help but go all in on what He calls us to. How do you say no to a God you know is both on the throne and a God you know you are undone before and a God you know has forgiven you of so much? How do we look at a God like that honestly if we understand those things and say, nah, I'm good. See, notice Isaiah says yes to God before he even knows anything about what God is sending him to do. Where he's sending him to go? What's he going to ask him to say? He has zero details other than God has a mission, a purpose. He wants something accomplished. He wants to send somebody to do something. To do what? Doesn't know. All that matters now is God wants to send. And a proper view of God or a real experience of grace leads to this kind of total, total surrender. When God shakes the foundations of our lives by His grace and rebuilds our lives on Him. And He's the center of the will. All of our lives are surrendered to Him because He's not a means to an end anymore. Like He might have been when we were lost. and We tried to use Him to get what we want. He is now the very point of our lives. The weightiest thing in our life. The center of our life. We've got to ask ourselves this morning, am I all in with God no matter the ask? Does God have a blank check with my life? See, we're bad about putting fences on God and trying to keep Him out of places, right? We like fences. You know, you know the old saying, fences make great neighbors, the best neighbors. That's just human. human we just kind of like, mm, we like our space. Last week, um, we went to an event with the kids because um, um, the world's greatest football team was in town. And... Um, we went to this little fan fest event um, for the kids, and, uh, and they had this fenced-in area, right? And um, you had to go through security checkpoints and all that. It wasn't even getting in the game. This was just to get into this area where there was bounce houses, things for the kids to play, and all that sort of stuff. So we're trying to get in there, and then 
the gate's locked, right? They've lost the key to the gate, so we have to march all the way around a couple of blocks, and we finally get inside this place. We have to go through security, and they're like, you're going to put this in a clear bag. It was very intense. They were, they were as much concerned with keeping people out, right, as letting people in. That's what, that's what fences are all about. That's what security's all about. It's not just about letting the right people in. It's about keeping the wrong people out. And we have a human tendency to do that with God. To let him in places we want him in and to try to keep him out of the places we don't want him going. You can't have this kind of experience with God and have that kind of halfway surrender in your life. That's not what following Christ looks like. He tears down all of our fences. And when that is the case, you can, you can give God your yes before you even know the why. Because you understand who God is and that he can be trusted and that, that ultimately your life is his. Does God have your yes? You say, yes to what, Pastor? To anything. To everything. To whatever he says. Every time you come to church and hear the word taught, every time you read your Bible, every time you pray, is your yes on the table. Do we go to the Bible going, what am I going to learn today and then decide what to do with it? Or do we go to the Bible saying, what is there, what am I to obey today? That's two different ways to approach the Bible. One goes looking at it and then kind of decides, is this for me? And one goes looking at it going, man, I know there's stuff in here that's going to shake up my life. And I bet I'm just along for the ride. And if God says jump, I'm going to jump. If he says run, I'm going to run. If he says fall down and roll over, I'm going to fall down and run over. Whatever he says, I'm going to do because my life is, he's got my yes. I'm all in. I'm, I'm with him. The yes is on the table. The here, he's got my here I am. For some, maybe you need to apply this personally this morning to your relationships, your attitude, marriage, Parenting, finances, I don't know. You go through the categories in your head. Where are you withholding a yes? Where are you basically saying, God, I'll obey if. If you have areas in your life that are unsurrendered, though you don't claim to be unforgiven, that is completely unacceptable before the Lord. That is an abuse of grace. Corporately, I'm asking for all of us to do this with God's mission and purpose of the church. So if you're a member here at North Park, to speak directly to you for a moment. God has given every local church a mission, and we are called to make disciples. And I'm asking for all of us to just put our yes on the table. Yes to what? Whatever our role is in that. It's good for us to do that constantly, to come back and call ourselves back to that because we're prone to wander from mission. Even I'm prone to wander from mission. To read to you from Matthew 28, 18 through 20, here's the marching orders of the local church given by the Lord Jesus. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That gives us our charge as a church to make disciples. That's our mission. It requires going, it requires baptizing, incorporating them into the body and teaching them to obey, to become like Christ, reaching people, bringing them in, discipling them, sending them out. The process of being a disciple never ends, right? Here's how we've been saying it around here for a few years now. We exist to glorify God by helping people trust and follow Christ. And we do this through 
gospel-centered worship community and mission because worship community and mission are the basic elements of what it means when Christ comes into your life and changes your life it changes how you vertically relate to God and how horizontally how you relate to others in terms of the local church in terms of your neighbor Jesus said people will know us by our love for one another community he tells us we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. that leads us to live on mission and he says we're to love God with all of our heart mind soul and strength that's what worship's all about We exist to glorify God by helping people trust the Father Christ. That's why the church is here through worship, community, and mission. And any vision, any vision for any church that's not born out of Jesus' mission is a wandering pursuit, a pointless pursuit even. In the coming weeks, we will learn more about the mission and vision I believe God is calling us to. But the question this morning is, does God have our yes when it comes to his mission? Does God have our yes when it comes to reaching our neighbors, making disciples, my role at North Park. Does God have my yes when it comes to doing whatever it takes to see us reach our full potential in Christ? Is it here am I? Send me. Does God promise us it will be easy? No. In fact, we don't, read, we don't ever preach the rest of Isaiah's story. Because God goes on to tell him, by the way, you're going to go preach to them and they're not going to listen. They're not going to listen. It's going to be like they have ears to hear, but they don't hear. It's, just, it's going to be in one ear, out the other. They're not going to listen. They're going to refuse to listen. But Isaiah, God, he had already given God his yes. In fact, legend has it, not the Bible, but legend tells us, and a pretty well accepted one, that Isaiah's life ended by being sewn in two by a wooden sword. Did not end well there, right? But God already had his yes. Already had his yes. He had already seen God in such a way that he knew that God mattered more. More than what? Just more. Just more. Do you know that God? Do you know that God? Do you have a personal relationship with that God through Christ? Has your life been touched by him, changed by him? Have you come to the point where you realize, first of all, God is holy, I am sinful, I need forgiveness. And realize that only comes through Jesus Christ. Secondly, believer, do you kind of maybe need to Come back to that God? Have you built some fences in your life where you're trying to keep God out? Do you need to recall God's holiness, His greatness, His beauty, His glory this morning, or His grace in your life? We need a vision of God that shapes our life and to respond to Him the only appropriate way with a surrendered life. So if who we understand God to be is not radically shaping our life, or if we're not surrendering to the Lord in every area of our life, then something's off. Our eyes are not on the Lord. Maybe you're like the guy with the colorblind glasses and somebody buys him a pair and for like a year he wears them every day. And then one day he gets up and he kind of forgets to put them back on and kind of gets used to seeing how he used to see. And day, another day goes by, another day goes by. One day, because he lived 40 years not seeing that way, he finds them two or three months later in a drawer, dust all over him, and he's like, I forgot all, what have I been doing? Sometimes we do that. We stop viewing life through the lens that we know we're supposed to view it through because we get our eyes off the Lord. And we need to come back to that place where we realize, who is God? Who am I in light of that? Who am I in light of His grace? And what has He called me to do? And is my yes always on the table? Let's pray.